0: Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Per our new podcast schedule, Bishop Barron and I have a dialogue episode every other week. And in the off weeks, we'd like to share with you content that you may not have heard of yet, whether it's from one of Bishop Barron's films or study programs, perhaps a sample lesson from our Word on Fire Institute. So that's what we're offering you today we're going to hear a segment from Bishop Barron's study program on the Eucharist. In that program, he looks at three different dimensions of the Eucharist. The one we're going to focus on today is the Eucharist as sacred meal. So I hope you enjoy this audio. Sit back and enjoy a sample lesson from Bishop Barron's study program on the Eucharist. Think of the
1: most festive, fun-filled, enjoyable, life-giving meal you've ever been at. Food and drink and steady supply, lots of laughter, good cheer, lively conversation, life being shared, the kind of party you wish would never end. That gives you the best idea on biblical grounds of what God intends for his people. The Sacrum Convivium, the sacred banquet, is a master image in the Bible of what God intends. And I want to put that in the widest possible biblical framework. Go right back to the beginning, the book of Genesis. God creates the heavens and the earth. Why? Why does God create? The church has consistently said, not out of need. God needs nothing. God is God, utterly perfect in every way. The world adds nothing to God's greatness or perfection. So then why does God create? Here's how Thomas Aquinas put it. Bonum diffusivum sui. It means the good is diffusive of itself. The good tends to bubble over. When you're in a good mood, you don't hide away. But you tend to bubble over. You want to share. So Vatican Council One said, God does not make out of need, but God creates out of a desire to manifest his glory. Now, you see what this means? It means the world in its entirety has been loved loved into existence. To love is to will the good of the other as other. Not to will someone's good so that you might benefit from it. That's indirect egotism. To love is to will the good of the other. Well, see, that's all God can do. God can't benefit from the world. Therefore, whatever is good and perfect in the world is for the sake of the world. God having loved it into existence and because all things, in all their variety, look how the book of Genesis exults in the variety of God's creation. Planets and stars and all the animals that move on the earth, even the things that creep and crawl upon the earth, it exults in the variety of God's creation. All those things are connected to each other because they all come forth from the divine source. Who's the summit of creation? The Bible speaks of Adam and Eve, who are given dominion over the earth. Now, don't read that as... Domination. Read it rather as stewardship. We hear that Adam gives names to all the animals. He catalogues them. The Greek words, catalogon, according to the word. What's he doing? He's naming them according to the intelligibility that God has placed within them. That's why the church fathers said Adam, before the fall, is the prototype of all science and of all philosophy naming things in accord with their god-given intelligibility more to it the father said adam before the fall is the first priest the same word is used in hebrew for the tilling of the soil of the garden of eden and for the caring for the temple in jerusalem adam who's god's friend who walks in easy fellowship with God, returning in gratitude and praise what God has given, is the prototype of priesthood, of adoration, of right praise. Now, look at this image. All things having come forth from God, all things connected to each other. Now, Adam, the scientist, the philosopher, the priest, returning in praise and gratitude what God has given to him, what better image could we find for this than the sacrum convivium the sacred banquet is it accidental that in the book of genesis god gives them a great permission we focus on the prohibition i'll get to that in a second but god gives this great permission eat eat of all the trees of the garden eating mind you a meal right from the beginning the holy banquet Is evocative of what God wants for his creation. Okay, what goes wrong? Now go back to that prohibition. There's one tree you shouldn't eat from. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Because that means you are appropriating to yourself deity. You are grasping divinity for your own self not receiving it as a gift and then giving it back in praise, which makes the gift only increase. That's the loop of grace. That's the sacrum convivium. But when Adam and Eve grasp at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they seek to make themselves divine. You see what happens? They interrupt the flow of grace. They're not returning now in, in praise and thanksgiving. They're grasping. They're hanging onto it. And since they make themselves into God and all of us sinners their descendants do the same thing We make ourselves into the center of the universe In the measure that they do that they interrupt what connects them to everything and everybody else in the cosmos You see how that sacrum convivium now falls apart Into bickering and rivalry and hatred and division God intended this beautiful meal Our trouble began with a bad meal. That's why, throughout the Bible, God is continually planting reminders of the Sacrum Convivium. Watch that motif now all through the Old Testament, and then, of course, in Jesus. Where do we see it first? Well, look at these Old Testament dynamics. God chooses the people Israel. What's their purpose? Not to glory in their chosenness. Their purpose is to become a magnet for the rest of the world. He would teach a people Israel how to praise him aright. He would teach a people Israel how to realize in themselves the sacrum convivium so that they might be the magnet for the rest of the world. What's at the heart of Israel? Now go to the book of Exodus. As God calls them out of slavery in Egypt, he calls them into freedom. He says, I want you to take a lamb. I want you to gather in your families around the table, slaughter the lamb, then eat it. And in this Passover supper, you will find your sacred identity. And he said, I want that Passover supper to be repeated down through the ages as the sign of the people that you are. You see what he's doing? He's reestablishing in Israel the lost sacrum convivium. The Passover supper is itself a kind of recovery of Eden and the integrity of the creation that God wants. Another great biblical image now. Go to the second chapter of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah speaks of, in his eschatological vision, this great mountain. The mountain of the Lord. And there, he says, all the tribes go up. The tribes of the Lord. What's on the top of Mount Zion? That was the temple. That was the temple. All the tribes of Israel, indeed, went up to the temple to pray. The temple, they say, was decorated with all the symbols of the cosmos, planets and stars and plants and animals. It was meant to be evocative of the lost Garden of Eden, because in the Garden of Eden, Adam gave God right praise. He walked in easy friendship and fellowship. That's where the Sacrum Convivium took place. Now the temple on the top of Mount Zion is the recovery of the lost Eden. There they give God right praise. What else do we hear about the holy mountain? We hear that instruction goes forth from that place. What's the deepest truth of things? We know it from the sacrum convivium. We know it from the recuperation of Eden. What else goes on there? We hear that the lion and the lamb lie down together. We hear they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's the place of nonviolence. You see why? Sin has led to this rupturing. It's led to a division, separation, us against them, me against you. But on God's holy mountain, where the sacrum convivium takes place, where all of us realize our common rootedness in God, we find peace. And then, Isaiah says, a third great thing happens on God's holy mountain. Yahweh himself lays out a great feast. Juicy, choice, food, and the best of wines are laid out by Yahweh. He hosts on the holy mountain the Sacrum Convivium. Do you see how that, too, is a recovery of the lost garden?" It's a restoring of what God intends for the human race. Now, against that backdrop, let's look at Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ? Not one figure among many. Not one prophet, one teacher among many. Not one spiritual guru among many. If that's all he is, the heck with him. Jesus is himself the very incarnation of Yahweh. He is the very incarnation of the God of creation, the God of the Old Testament. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that the sacred meal plays a key role in his life and his ministry. Look at the very beginning. Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes. And then Luke tells us he's placed in a manger. What's the manger but the place where the animals eat? Bethlehem, where he was born, it means the house of bread. Jesus, from the very beginning, is offered as food for the world. At the climax of his life, he would say, take this, all of you, and eat it. This is my body given for you. And that is signaled from the very beginning, when he is laid there in the manger as food, bread for the world. When Jesus commences his public ministry, what do we find? What the scholars call open table fellowship. Jesus consistently invites to the table. He hosts meals. Who's invited? Everybody. Saint and sinner. Healthy and sick. Those in the center of society, those on the margins. Jesus scandalized people in his time because of his very inclusive table fellowship. How shouldn't we read that? Oh, simply is Jesus being a nice, inclusive fellow. No, no, read it against this rich background I've been describing. Jesus, who is the incarnation of the Yahweh of the Old Testament. Mount Zion, true pole of the earth, there all the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Jesus is himself God's holy mountain. Jesus is himself bread for the world, and therefore he's a magnetic presence drawing to him all of the tribes of Israel. He is Yahweh hosting Israel the sacrum convivium. Where else do you find it? Oh, that wonderful story of the conversion of Matthew. Remember when Jesus calls to Matthew, and Matthew gets up and and he follows him. Now, Jesus will give Matthew a great mission that will lead to his own death. He'll give him plenty of expectation. But the first thing he does after Matthew rises up and comes to him, the first thing he does is he sits down with him at a banquet. He wants to commune with him in friendship, the way Adam once commune with Yahweh in easy fellowship. And then it says, to that banquet came all of Matthew's fellow tax collectors. Much to the shock and chagrin of those around Jesus, but that's Yahweh's role, that's his job, is to call to him the lost and the marginalized and the sinners of the world. So they came to the holy banquet you know a scene that must have haunted the imaginations of the first Christians? Because you can find it in all four Gospels. The story of the multiplication of the loaves and fishes. It's absolutely archetypal for everything I've been talking about. Jesus is up on a mountain. There he is. That's Isaiah's holy mountain. He's been preaching and teaching. See, because from that mountain, instruction goes forth. And so the word of God speaks to the people. They're attracted to him by the thousands. The disciples notice, now we're out here in this, in this out-of-the-way place and these people are hungry and Lord, give us permission to send them away. Here's the old voice, by the way, of sin. The Greek word diabolin, it means to scatter. Diabalos. diablo, diablo, the devil. That's what that word means. Diabolin means to scatter. It's always the instinct of sin. Lord, give us permission to scatter them, send them away. No, no, no. Jesus called 12 disciples not to scatter Israel, but to gather them. And that's why he says, No, no, tell the people to sit down. And what do you have? Oh, well, we have, you know, five loaves and a couple of fish. That's all we have. Give them to me. You see what's happening there? No first century Jew would have missed this, I think. What's happening there is a recovery of Eden. God gives his sheer grace. And when we return it to him in thanks and praise, he doesn't need it. Therefore, it comes back to us, elevated and multiplied. That's the secret to life. That's the whole spiritual thing is right there. We receive God's great grace as a gift, and then we give it back to him, and it's multiplied and multiplied and multiplied. In this great story, yes, even unto the feeding of the 5,000. Give the little bit you have to me, and you'll find it multiplied. And they all ate till they had their fill. What doesn't fill us up? All the goods of the world, they're good in themselves. Nothing wrong with the, with the goods of the world. But when we seek to fill up our great spiritual emptiness with the goods of the world, we remain starving. What fills us up? Christ. Christ. Christ, the bread of life. Padre, Padre, per favore, per favore, please, Father. That's what fills us up. That's why they ate till they had their fill. How many fragments were left over? Enough to fill 12 baskets. That stands for the 12 tribes of Israel. It stands for the feeding of the entire world. That story is all about the sacrum convivium. It's all about the Mass, the Eucharist. All this comes to its high point, of course. When Jesus, at the end of his life, comes to Mount Zion, true pole of the earth. He comes to the place of the temple. He sits down once again at a meal, at a sacrum convivium, with his 12 apostles, evocative of those gathered 12 tribes. And then he does what Yahweh has wanted from the beginning. He feeds them, yes, with his very body and blood. He feeds them with his lifeblood, with his substance. On that holy mountain, we see, recapitulated, gathered, all these themes. The Last Supper, it is the Garden of Eden, recovered. The Last Supper, it is the place where sinners are invited to sup with the Lord. The Last Supper, it is Isaiah's holy mountain. Now, every time we gather for the Mass, we are in that place. Let me say it again. Whenever we gather for the Mass, we are in that place where those same themes are gathered and recapitulated. Look at the way we gather for Mass. Saints and sinners, yep. Those on the outside, those on the inside, yeah. Educated, uneducated, yep. There is this wonderful inclusivity about the way we gather for the Mass. Our society, like all sinful societies, are, is based upon stratification, division, over and againstness, who's up, who's down. Dorothy Day, when she was considering becoming a Catholic, was so deeply moved by the way Catholics gather. She saw the, the rich and the poor kneeling side by side in the church. It so moved her. Where are we? We are on Isaiah's holy mountain, all the tribes going up, the tribes of the Lord. Sinners, welcome there. Sure, here we all are. At the beginning of Mass, we say, Kyrie eleison, Christe eleison. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. We're like Matthew, yes, called by Christ, but sinners, nevertheless included in the sacrum convivium. Is it the multiplication of the loaves and fishes? Yes. What comes forward at Mass? Less than five loaves and a couple of fish. What comes forward at Mass? A few little pieces of bread, a little bit of wine, a little bit of water. People bring that forward. The priest receives them. Is that enough to feed our hunger, either physically or spiritually? Of course not. It's next to nothing, a little bit of God's creation. But what do we do? We offer that back in gratitude to God. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this bread to offer, this little nothing, a little bit of your creation, but we offer it back to you. Blessed are you, Lord God of all creation, for through your goodness we have this wine to offer. What is it? What's next to nothing? A little bit of wine. But we offer it back to God. Does God need it? Mm -mm, God needs nothing. But when offered back to God, when it breaks against the rock of the divine self-sufficiency, listen, it comes back to us, multiplied and elevated. It comes back to us as the body and blood of Jesus, which alone can satisfy our deepest hunger. We are again on that mountain with the Lord. And finally, we are the descendants of those twelve. The 12 tribes of Israel, yes, once they're gathered, they become a magnet to gather all the tribes of the world. Well, here we are at Mass, representatives of these many tribes of the world, and we are gathered like that new 12 around that table. And we have the privilege to receive the lifeblood of God. We are at the Sacrum Convivium, the holy banquet which alone will satisfy our deepest hungers.
0: Well, we hope you enjoyed that sample lesson from Bishop Barron's study program on the Eucharist. If you wanna access all of the lessons in this course, then you definitely want to join the Word on Fire Institute. You've heard us talk about it before. Maybe you've been sitting on the fence. Well, let this be the moment that pushes you over. Over 15,000 people have joined the Institute to date, and they're learning all sorts of tips and strategies on how to be a better evangelist from some of the top minds and theologians in the church today. We have over a dozen full-length courses inside the Institute. In addition, when you sign up, you get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs, including this one, the Eucharist. We'll also send you four times a year our beautiful, smart journal titled The Evangelization and Culture Journal. And then finally, we'll send you a free copy of Bishop Barron's latest book titled Centered. So lots of great reasons to sign up for the Word on Fire Institute. But again, if only to get the rest of the lessons in this course, you definitely want to check it out. Find it at wordonfire.institute. That's the website, wordonfire.institute. And we hope to see you inside soon. And with that, we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show.